with all this talk um, that we've had throughout this series of, of seeing things through Old Testament eyes, today we can actually afford a little bit of time spending a little bit more time looking through Old Testament eyes. We're going to spend about as much time in Old Testament passages as we are in Revelation today. Revelation 15 and 16, just two chapters. How about a shorter week, huh? <laughs> we're going to need it because next week we're going to go quite a bit longer, so I'm going to borrow from this week's time and apply it to next week. Um, this week, seeing God's victory in the midst of rebellion. We know that God's going to be victorious, so what does that mean in the midst of rebellion? What does his victory entail? Now that the choice for the seven churches is clear, give in to the lure and the, the delusions of the enemy, the beast, or endure alongside of the army of the lamb, John replays a final cycle of seven divine judgments, the pouring out of seven bowls. From the Lamb's scroll, many among the nations do repent. And for that, we need to rejoice. Don't just skip over realities like that because every time it talks about people turning and repenting, that, those are souls that are welcomed in to the family. But alas, just like Pharaoh, there are many whose hard hearts persist and they do not repent. Chapter 15, verse one, with these last plagues, judgments, the wrath of God is finished. And then verse two, and I saw heaven appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. So the song of Moses, that comes from Exodus chapter 15, verse 1, or Exodus just chapter 15. If you have Bibles, I'll pause a moment because I'd love for you to go back there. Flip back to Exodus Chapter 15, the Song of Moses celebrates God's great victory over the Egyptians at the Red Sea. And it says, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And then it continues. It's, it's worth a great read on its own. That's why I wanted you, if you have Bibles, to kind of turn there. Maybe put a bookmark there. It's, it's worth a great reflection on its own right. Seeing things through Old Testament eyes or, or hearing things through Old Testament ears, when we read in Revelation that the song of Moses comes up, here's the thing, for, for the early first century Jew, this song would have been sang in ancient synagogues every Sabbath. Think people with 
Old Testament ears would have recognized that, the Song of Moses. They're like, yeah, we sing that every single week. Can you imagine singing one song every time we gather as a church? You'd be unbelievably familiar with it. Never forget how the Lord fought for us. Generations after generations after generations later, never forget the end of the efforts of anyone that threatens his people. Never forget where they end up and how they end up. People still question God. They got impatient because of his timing. Seems like we have a lot in common with God's people throughout history. But Jews would keep this song, the song of Moses, in front of them each and every week in their services in order that they would do all that they could to remember and reflect that the Lord will overcome. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. And then the song of Moses ends with, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Seems like hope is dwindling. No. His reign isn't threatened. His reign isn't limited. And his judgment upon those that rebel against him will come. Continuing a bit with this thought path along the lines of Exodus, we recall the 10 divine, devastating plagues over Egypt, serving as a marking point for the Jew that their God is active, victorious, and he is a ready, just dispenser of judgment. Holding on to that Exodus backdrop, let let me overlay a bit of a survey of our two chapters in Revelation, chapters 15 and 16. Like last week, we hear about the celebration, the praise, the worship first. The song of Moses, which we just talked about, and the song of the Lamb, which we'll get to in a moment. And then we see the judgments played out in plague form. Once again, a nod to the inverted scope of time. Celebration before action. But all of this from the God that is beyond time, above time. We are assured of his certain victory in the actions he's about to do, pouring out the bowls of wrath. Now, you don't need to write these down. This is just an overview. With bowl one in Revelation, that's harmful and painful sores. Well, that's like the sixth plague in Egypt. Bulls two and three, blood in the sea and the rivers and the springs. That's like the first plague of Egypt. Bulls four and five, scorching heat of the sun followed by agonizing darkness. That's like the ninth plague of Egypt. And bull number six, this is This is so interesting, such a profound connection. In bowl number six, God removes restraints. He dries up the rivers so that the forces of the dragon and the beast could freely assemble and have an open path to assault the lamb's army. (laughs) Not exactly your best battle plan there, God. Except, fascinatingly, this is just like God hardening Pharaoh's heart, giving him away to the eternal wayward condition of his choices and allowing Pharaoh to pursue his hatred. 
despite all the evidences of the Lord's power in plagues, so that Egypt would relent and repent, Pharaoh was ultimately allowed to pursue the people of Israel, only to end up in his final judgment. One definitive day, judgment comes for all who reject all other options. They are given away to their own will. Bowl number seven, devastating and Severe, unlike anything since man was on earth, verse 18 says. Unprecedented in Old Testament, eyes or ears or ours. So with that brief overview, I want to go back and zoom in a little bit on chapter 15, starting with verses 3 and 4, where the song of the Lamb follows the song of Moses, with phrases drawn out of psalms and prophets furthering the praise for the mighty deliverance of the Lord and his just judgment and wrath that's poured out upon his enemies. And smoke fills the temple, we read in chapter 15, verse 8. As these bowls, these plagues are being poured out, there's like an advanced note in verses 6 through 8, and then it's described throughout chapter 16. The smoke filling the temple, like the Ark of the Covenant we briefly mentioned last week, symbolizes what's called the Shekinah cloud that appeared in the tabernacle and the temple. Now, Shekinah or Shekinah glory is a term or terms that appear outside of the Bible in rabbinic and Jewish scholar writings. It it talks about encounters or experiences with this divine cloud, the Shekinah glory, And it can be found in the divine guidance of the pillar of the cloud, guiding the people of Israel in Exodus 13, 21, and in the tabernacle in the desert, Exodus 40, verse 34, and a cloud above the ark, Leviticus 16, 2, and a cloud in the temple, Ezekiel 10, and even a cloud at the transfiguration. Matthew 17, all of this symbolizing the fullness of God's unique presence in those developments, a rich, volume-heavy representation of God's full presence, and being included here in Revelation 15 and 16, it shows us that the fullness of God's presence was evident in these judgments. God is the originator of the wrath that's being poured out. I want you to pay attention to this. Revelation 15, 8, just as smoke fills the temple before the bowls are poured out, God is the source of these devastating judgments. Anyone have a problem there? Like, even a little? I do. The fullness of our God poured out in judgment. That's a very real struggle. It's honestly a disturbing part of how God acts throughout history that we need to at least try to address. How do we reconcile the God that we know and love and that is a peacemaker? How do we reconcile all the times, the very real times that we see him 
pouring out wrath and judgment. It's not something we're going to solve, but it's something we at least need to try to work on. That's this week. And we're not the only ones who struggle with stuff like this. Sometimes this topic is called divine violence. Heretical groups have been formed over a refusal to reconcile these things. A second century man named Marcion, he utterly rejected the Old Testament on the grounds that the God of the Old Testament was a tyrant. And I'm not sure he'd be a fan of Revelation either. Marcion and his followers believed that the wrathful God of the Old Testament could not possibly be the all-loving, all-forgiving God of the New Testament. So he developed a belief that Jesus was not the son of the God of the Old Testament because he can't be trusted or obeyed. But he's the son of a, a good God, a new God, a different God. Man, that's logic that still finds its way into minds today. I could never follow a God that, that what? Wouldn't do things the way you see fit? Any thoughts as we're trying to see this from this, this big picture cosmic level? Any thoughts of the type of agenda or the tactic things like this sound like? Are there any inklings or, or icky feelings about the types of voices and tactics that are all over delusions and doubts like that? I believe that the tactics of the dragon, beast-like deception and questioning the ways of the Lord are all over developing heresies and the rejection of the way of the Lord like this. This kind of thing sounds an awful lot like the great serpent all the way back in the garden going, did God really say that? Is God really like that? See, bad theology like this isn't just off base. It's dangerous. It's the realm of the enemy. It's deceptive. It's beast-like. This is why we got to take our theology, what we believe about God, very seriously. Tony Evans recently quoted, God is who he is. He is not who you want him to be. So if we can't skip it, just rip pages out of our Bibles that we don't like, like Thomas Jefferson did, and we can't change it, like creating a, a heretical new belief on our terms, like Marcion did, then we've got to see something in it. We've got to at least try to work through it. First and foremost, we need to read and see that, that God has acted in the whole scope of time. We don't just take isolated pieces of how he has acted and make cases out of them. That's what the Pharisees did. And it really ticked Jesus off. Secondly, try to understand how God always chooses to act in history in a context in which he finds people and nations. What I mean by that is, as people and nations ceaselessly and increasingly resort to violence and oppression in their response to God's plan for the world, 
then God has a choice. It's not necessarily a, a reset button choice or an idealistic choice. He has a choice in the context in which he finds people acting. And God chooses to protect his people and enact his purposes. The dehumanizing elements of the cultures, developing into, devolving into practices like child sacrifice, brutality, sexual rituals, and so on, would ceaselessly continue to corrupt and torture and take over like a cancer. A good God will not allow that to go on indefinitely unchecked. God still strives to extend dramatic, shocking grace, even in his acts of judgment. We've seen him showing restraint, pouring out his wrath, but only, only a, a third of it. Not total annihilation. And room for repentance. We see throughout the Old Testament and New Testament that strangers to his community are welcomed in because of his patience but with perfect sense of justice and perfect timing and perfect wrath and perfect mercy and vindicating his people who have suffered and even been slain for his sake, all put together, he acts. And even if the enemy and the Marcians of the world see his actions as suspect, the choir of heaven sees all of this in perfect righteousness and justice. That's why in these chapters in Revelation, chapter 16, verse 5, they proclaim, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard at the altar that according to Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, that's the souls who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. I had heard these martyrs, the special forces of the army of the Lamb, cry out, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So when it comes to God's wrath and justice being poured out. There is so much more we could explore, like there is with everything in the rest of this study. But it's all part of a larger story that points to Jesus as God's ultimate response to human evil that acts like the beasts that eternally oppose God. So if you're still struggling with that a bit, the sense of the God that I worship pouring out his judgment and his wrath, struggling with that is a good thing. It'll lead us to deeper, real encounters with who God really is and what he does. So returning to our, our focus on that pivotal sixth bowl, verses 12 through 16 in chapter 16, the dragon, Satan, and the beast, nations, they gather at Armageddon, images drawn out of the book of Ezekiel. And before we take a look at Ezekiel, Armageddon, it's this indefinite place 
possibly symbolic of the type of battlefield or plain that was close in proximity to Jerusalem. It's a place called Megiddo. And we've actually driven by there. Here's, here's a picture, I think, uh, on the screens that I snapped as we drove by this simple sign that pointed the way to Megiddo. It can kind of be a little weird when you're driving and you're like, turn right if you want to go to Armageddon. That can be kind of a, a weird thing to wrap your head around. But whether this valley is the prophesied site of a real final battle or whether Armageddon is representative of a final assembly of enemy forces, and either one is certainly possible. That's a brief exploration of what the term Armageddon plays. It's a gathering place, a gathering locale for the enemy's forces. Okay, in Ezekiel's time, the resistance came in the form of a leader named Gog, whose name actually pops up a little bit later in Revelation chapter 20 in the land of Magog. Now, unless you want to read the whole account of God versus Gog yourself, that's in Ezekiel 38 and 39, uh, spoiler alert, God wins. <laughs> We're going to look specifically at a few verses. Like a broken record, Gog devises an evil scheme to, to fall upon the quiet people living safely in the land. And he recruits forces of Persia and Cush and Put, Gomer and Bet Torgama with all their hordes. Kind of funny names there, but, but just more names to add to the long list of vanquished enemies. It can kind of be a little bit of a shame when you remember these were people included in the long list of vanquished enemies opposing God. Ezekiel 38, 16, God says, you will come up against my people, Israel, like a cloud covering the land. In the latter days, I will bring you against my land that the nations may know me. When through you, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Verse 23, so I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations, then they will know that I am the Lord. In 39, verse seven, and my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel and I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Ezekiel's figure for violent, rebellious nations that, that God would ultimately use to show who he really is to the world, it was Gog of Magog. Daniel's was Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. John's was Nero of Rome. For every person who refuses total allegiance to these kind of leaders, these nations, they will desperately and fiercely fight you. Unyielding allegiance to us or fierce repercussions. That's the MO of the enemy. It's the devil's end game. As we said before in our brief overview of the seven bowls, in the sixth bowl, God removes the restraints that he has set up 
against the enemy, gathering all of its forces together against the church. And just like Pharaoh, the enemy gathers through delusions of victory to assemble for their final downfall. The seventh bowl. The seventh bowl, the final depiction of the day of the Lord. When God is victorious and evil is defeated among the nations. Unlike the trumpet judgments, gracefully restrained to thirds, the destruction we see here with the seventh bowl is total. Verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. As I said before, this final clash is not a nail-biter. It was over before it ever began. It is done, God said, in the very midst of rebellion. God's victory amidst rebellion. It is finished. Like we said in week five, either we will have Jesus's cry on the cross, it is finished as a banner over us for all of eternity, as a foundation of our salvation, or we will have this voice coming out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done, as a foundation for our judgment. Now John has, has fully unpacked the message of the Lamb's unsealed scroll. And before we're done this week, I wanna go back to something that, that just kept sticking out to me from chapter 16, verses five through seven. Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. And then, yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Judgment. Would people trust anyone who definitively and decisively judges? We tend to hate judgment. Who are you to judge me? Or you're being so judgmental. Or maybe I think I'm basically good. Or even falling back to only God can judge me, neglecting that he actually will. Romans 6, 23 tells us the wages of sin 
is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus. Would people trust anyone besides themselves who judges? Judges at the level of your heart and judges for eternity. Your eternal destiny. If the answer to that question is yes, then receive his free gift of eternal life by entrusting ourselves to Jesus. And if the answer to that is never, I judge myself, then remain destined in death. That is an eternal condition with an eternal consequence. Revelation real, reveals that an ultimate point of judgment is imminent. No one can escape it. No one is exempt. No one is worthy of judging themselves. Revelation 20, next week, we're going to encounter the final judgment before the great white throne. Amidst rebellion, God's victory can and must be sung about and celebrated. And chapter 16, verses 5 through 7 that we just talked about, and also chapter 15, verses 3 through 4, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. God can be sung about because he is perfect in love, perfect in wrath, perfect in justice, perfect in victory. Our God is victorious in the midst of whatever we're facing, in the midst of whatever these faith groups spread across seven different churches we're facing. We need to see, experience, encounter this, and remember that God is unthreateningly just and victorious. It's a certainty even before it has played out in the course of history that God stands far above the efforts of the enemy and rebellious nations. God is victorious. Next week, we're gonna explore the deep waters at the heart of eschatology, engaging everything from the millennium to the rapture to the final judgment before the throne, at least to whatever extent that we can try to understand those things. But for now, let's just stand in awe of God's great and sure victory, even amidst and even over rebellion. We hope you encountered the love and power of Jesus in today's study. If you're interested in giving for ministry and service information and much more, visit our website at timberlinechurch.org. Have a great week. Go be the church and let love live.